please take out your Bible and open to the book of Revelation, right at the very end of your Bible, chapter 3, verse 7. We are continuing in our series, the seven letters to the seven churches. These are the seven letters of Jesus Christ to the seven churches or to seven of the churches in Asia Minor. And today we come to the sixth of the seven churches, then Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and now Philadelphia, Philadelphia. And you might remember from last week that Michael was describing the church of Sardis. And we, we found in Jesus's words in the first part of chapter three about the church in Sardis that they looked very much alive on the outside, but they were actually dead on the inside. There was no spiritual life in them at all. Turn the page. We come to the church at Philadelphia, about 25 miles southeast of Sardis, and it's just the opposite. This is a church that's very much alive inside out. This is the church that is in keeping with the word of God, a church that is passionately pursuing Jesus Christ, a, a church that is effectively being a light in the culture. It's a, it's a light that is in them. It's, it's burning brightly through them to a city that is blanketed by darkness. And because this church is so different, this letter is very different. In fact, Jesus does not rebuke this church at all. Only one other church, the church at Smyrna, that Jesus doesn't rebuke. Everybody else, there is a strong rebuke. Not here. No, here Jesus actually shows them their future. And it's incredible. And he shows them an opportunity, an opportunity, an extraordinary opportunity that they have in the present. An open door for more, for more influence, for more transformation, for more of Jesus Christ himself. And what's true about the church in Philadelphia, and we've said this all along the way, it's true about every church in Asia Minor. What's true about these churches is true about us. It's true for us. Your future is indescribable. And the extraordinary opportunity that God gives us as individuals in his church to see more of him and to know more of him and to experience more of him, it's incredible even today. I'm going to ask you to stand with me one more time, if you would, for the reading of God's word. These are Jesus' words to the church in Philadelphia, his message to them, beginning in verse seven of chapter three. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, he who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. 
And he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends the reading of God's word, Jesus' words to this church in Philadelphia. You can take your seats. And we're going to look at this letter in two parts this morning, the promises of Jesus and the opportunity for the church. Five promises for the future and one extraordinary opportunity in the present. We're going to start with the promises that Jesus makes to the faithful at Philadelphia. And we see here at the end of verse 8 that Jesus describes this church. He describes them with two phrases. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. And because you have been faithful to me, to my words and to my name, you've been a faithful witness to the city that you live in. Here are my promises to you. And the first promise just follows in verse 9. Here it is. I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, they lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and I will make them know that I have loved you. Now, this is interesting. The primary opposition to the church in Philadelphia is not from those who oppose God. It's actually from those who claim that they know God better from those who say they are Jews and claim to be the true followers of God. Now, there's a little bit of a play on words here. The ones who say they are Jews, they actually are Jews, but they are not true followers of God. Why? Because they have not placed their trust in Jesus Christ. What Jesus is saying here is it's, it's not the uber-religious Jew that knows me. It is actually, in this case, the Gentile Christian that knows me, the Gentile Christian is, play on words, the better Jew. And Jesus will spend the entirety of the book of Revelation redefining the true Jew. The true Jew is now Jesus's church. It's not the Old Testament Israelite who had relationship with God, the nation of God, and Jesus still does, or God still does have relationship with Israel, but now the true Jew is actually the believer in Jesus Christ. It is the, the new believer, the one who pursues Christ. That's the one that Jesus loves. And he says here that, that you who say you're followers of me but are not, you are actually of the synagogue of Satan. Can you imagine telling a very fervent religious Jew in the very first century that they were of the synagogue of Satan. You are actually my enemy because I am the way to life. I came and died, gave my life for you. You have the opportunity to become a true Jew, but you are not. And because you are not, you are my enemy and you will in the end bow down to my church. You will in the end be forced to acknowledge my love for someone else, for it will be my church that is standing with me. And promise number one to the faithful is this. Those who oppose you today, whoever they may be, will honor you in the end. They will honor the faithful in the end. What a 
promise. Well, promise number two follows, and it's found in verse 10. Look at verse 10 now. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, meaning that you have endured in the truth, as I endured in the suffering that I faced on earth, you have endured in the truth, even in the midst of Jewish antagonism, even in the midst of persecution, because you have kept the word, you have kept the truth, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Promise number two is this, you will be delivered from the hour of trial. Now, to better understand this promise, we have to take a little bit of a deeper theological dive here. Uh, First, and and you know this, there is much that is debated among evangelical circles regarding the theological understanding of end times. Eschatology is the theological term. Much that is discussed, much that is debated about the timing of things. So we have all kinds of events that people have differing opinions on, differing views on. So you got the second coming of Jesus, and the millennial reign, the resurrection of the believers. And, and it's, it's, it's in that conversation, at the core of it is actually, uh, it's, it's actually not so much about the events themselves as it is about the timing of these events, when these things happen. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 is probably the most debated verse we have around the timing of the rapture. The rapture in regard or in relationship to the the tribulation. Now, just so we're clear on terms, the rapture, rapture means caught up. That's what the word means in Greek, caught up. That's what the rapture means in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. This is the time, the event that will happen in the future when Jesus arrives in the air and believers in Jesus Christ will be caught up with him in the clouds. That's the rapture. Tribulation is different. Tribulation is a period of time, a period of time when the whole world will suffer greatly, great suffering, great trial, great tribulation and testing. So rapture and tribulation, okay? Now, there are two primary views of the rapture. The first view is this. The first view is that the rapture will take place before this great tribulation. That's called pre-trib or pre-tribulation position. The second view is this. There's a post-trib, that is that the the, the, uh, rapture will happen after the tribulation, post-trib, post-trib tribulation. In the theological discussion about the rapture, at least as it relates to our verse for today, it centers around the meaning of the Greek word ek, ek, ek. That's the word that we find here in the middle of verse 10 that is translated in our Bibles from. See right in the middle of the verse? I will keep you from the hour of testing. And the question is, what does this Greek word ek mean in this context? Does it mean that Jesus will keep us from undergoing tribulation, pre-trib, or does it mean that Jesus Christ will keep us through the tribulation? That is, protect us during and throughout the tribulation. And just so I don't leave somebody out, there's also a mid-trib view that, that is that the rapture will occur right in the middle of the tribulation. And of course, there are those who believe that this verse doesn't have anything to do with the tribulation at all. 
So we got that going for us. So now we have pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and no-trib, at least as it relates to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Now, it's my job today to make sense of this in about the next two minutes. That's my job today because we still have a whole lot of this letter to go. And, and here's, here's what I'll say. Here goes. I don't know when the rapture is going to occur. There it is. We can go on now. I, I don't know if we will live through the tribulation, if Christians will live through the tribulation or not. I don't know. If I had to say right now, if I had to lean right now, it's like 5149, I would lean just this much toward post, that post trip. Now, now, Michael leans toward pre and Lloyd has no idea. So, <laughs> and Lloyd is probably right, actually. So that's where we are. This is why it's such a good and healthy debate. I will tell you what I do know. I know that when it comes to tribulation, the great tribulation or any season of trial and, tri trial and testing, I, I know that Jesus Christ's relationship to his church is different than his relationship to the whole world. It's different. Uh, I, I know that. I'm not saying that it's any easier for Christians. It's not. What I am saying is that whether he takes us right through it or whether he steers us around it, he is in it with us always. I know that's true. I know that the tribulation will overcome the world, but it will not overcome the Christian. I know that's true. I know that the tribulation now and later is not the end. We will join Jesus Christ in the clouds. I know that's true. And those are all good things. Those are great things, which makes this promise great for God's church. However God sees fit for it to happen, Jesus Christ will deliver his now let's look at verse 11, third promise. Here it is. It's found in the first phrase of verse 11. Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Promise. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. What good news this must have been to the persecuted church in Philadelphia. Imagine this. They get a letter. It's written by John. It's from Jesus. It arrives at the doorstep. They, they gather at the church. Somebody reads the letter. And the character of Jesus Christ is revealed in a deeper way to them. This is the Lord, our Savior, speaking to us. And he speaks an exhortation and a promise in verse 11. Here's the exhortation. Hold fast to the truth. Hold tight to your faith. Don't forfeit what you've worked so hard to maintain. Don't forfeit your crown for I am coming again. And I'm coming soon. I'm coming suddenly, unexpectedly. You might not know when, but that in no way inhibits this promise to you. My return is imminent. My victory is yours. And your reward, your crown will be great. Men and women, this is our hope. This is it. It's to know with every waking moment that Jesus Christ is returning for you. That's our hope. It's to know that whatever we face right now, whatever difficulty that is standing right in front of us in our very lives right now, it will be worth it in the end. It will be worth it to the faithful. And it's not just so that we will get to the finish line and somehow fall, just barely fall across the tape. It's that when we get there, Jesus will look at us, finish the race. 
You fought the good fight. And I take great pride in giving you, my church, this reward. That's it. That's what's coming for you and me. What good news for Philadelphia and for us. Verse 12, fourth promise. First part of verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. Philadelphia was a very religious city. Um, it, it had as many temples as Nashville does churches. And it was a very prosperous city, a very affluent city. It was prosperous for two reasons. One is that it was on the trade route from Asia to Europe, so lots of people passing through. And the second was is that it was set in an agricultural region that was very good for vineyards. And so they had very, big wine produce, big grape produce in this city, prosperous for those two Reasons it, it laid at the end of a long, actually on the upper end of a long valley and right on the edge of an active volcano, which made uh, the ground fertile and rich for growing grapes. And it also put the city, it made the city very vulnerable for earthquakes. And there's lots of historical accounts, especially in the first century, uh, about earthquakes that some actually even leveled the city of Philadelphia and they had to rebuild. But these would happen frequently, uh, earthquakes, tremors, aftershocks. And when the earthquakes would come, the people, of course, would run out of the city, out of the wall, so that nothing would fall on them, so that they would not be harmed. Okay, so a little bit about the city. Now, at the end of Revelation, Jesus describes the new city, the city that will inhabit the believer forever to come. He describes that as the ultimate temple, God's holy city. The presence of God will be there and we will be there with him. The holy city is like a temple. Now back to verse 12, the promise in verse 12. Jesus says to the faithful who overcome, you will be like pillars. Now so often when these people would run out of the city of Philadelphia, the earthquake would end and they would go back into the city. Several of the buildings Buildings and the temples would be leveled and only the pillars would be left standing. There's cultural context to this verse. A cultural context to this very generation. You will be like pillars, pillars that remain standing. Permanent pillars in my home, holy city. No longer will you as, a, you as a people have to run out of the city for my city is safe. There is nothing to fear in my city. In fact, here's my promise to you. You will have a permanent residence in the presence of God. That's my promise. You will have a perpetual home in a city that will never be leveled. What a promise. Promise number one is those who oppose you today will honor you in the end. Two, you will be delivered from the hour of trial. Jesus is coming quickly. That's number three. And number four, you have a permanent residence in the presence of God. Here's promise number five. You will forever be identified with Jesus. You and I will forever be identified with Jesus. Second part of verse 12. Look at this. He who overcomes, make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And... I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my name. Now, a name, of course, is a profound statement of identity. It's true throughout Scripture where a name was often the representation of the character of the person. 
It is true for us today. A, a name means something. My three kids, they will always be Wellens. They will be known as Lily Wellens and Emma Wellens. That, that's what they'll be known as. People will know that they, they will be identified by their name, by, by their family name. It's still significant today, isn't it? My son will always be William Emery Wellens III, whether he likes it or not. He will always be. He will be identified with me. In the imprint of a name, it indicates ownership. My son got a new basketball just about three or four weeks ago. You know the first thing he did when he got it? He wrote his name on it with Wellens. Why did he write his name on it? Because he wanted all the neighborhood kids to know that that new ball was his. It belonged to him. And here in verse 12, name is used three times in a half a verse. Three times. He says, I will write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my name. And when he does that, he is saying to us that you and I will forever belong to him. You are his redeemed property. You have citizenship in his new city. You will bear his very name. If you trust Christ, if you remain faithful to him, you are his, period. You're his. We will forever be identified with him. Five extraordinary promises for the future and one extraordinary opportunity in the present. And that opportunity is presented to us in verses seven and eight. So go back to seven and eight. Look with me there. He who is holy, speaking of Jesus, who is true, who has the key of David, that reminds us of chapter 1, verse 18, where it says Jesus holds the keys. That is the keys to eternity, the keys to heaven and to hell. He who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds, your thoughts, your actions, all of it, and behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. So what is, on, what is on the basis of the character of this church, Jesus puts before them a doorway of opportunity, an open door which no one can shut. But, but what is the opportunity for the church? Well, it's a kingdom opportunity. It's an opportunity to extend the reach of the gospel further into the city of Philadelphia such that others, in this case, Jewish opposition, Jewish opposers, and idol worshipers might place their trust in Christ and be saved. That's the opportunity before them. Well, how do we know that that's the opportunity before them? Well, it's because this exact same phrase, an open door, is used at the end of the book of Revelation, and it's used twice by Paul. Now, this verse is going to come up on the screens. I'm going to turn there, but in Acts 14, 27, Paul has just returned from his first missionary journey. He's, he's returned with Barnabas to the church in Antioch, the sending church for his first missionary journey. And it's there that John writes about their first missionary journey. And we'll see this same phrase, the open door. Acts chapter 14, verse 27. There it is on the side screens, if you can see it. Just kidding, it's not up there. You're going to have to listen. Here it is. Good. Here it is. Ready? Verse 27. When they had arrived and gathered the church together in Antioch, they began to report all things 
that God had done with them and how, here it is, he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, if you were to go back and read the story or the account of the missionary journey, you would know that many Gentiles had placed their trust in Christ as he and Barnabas went city to city. And it's the opportunity that they have just had that the church in Philadelphia has now. An opportunity to extend the reach of the gospel in their very own city. Okay, I got that. But how do we as Christians walk through the door, walk through the open door of opportunity? How do we go about that? How do we do that? Well, it's by keeping his word. It's by following the example of this church. Well, what does it mean to keep his word? Well, it means to pursue the truth, to seek after the truth of God's word, to seek true doctrine, not to hide the truth, but to hold fast to it, to maintain the authority and the integrity of it. This is, it is achieved, walking through the door is achieved by not blending in, by being distinct to who we are as Christians. Well, how do I do that? You just be authentic to who you really are. Where's our identity? It's in Jesus Christ. Who's our family? Jesus Christ and each other. It's just by being authentic to who we are. This is not trying to come up with some, some mastermind plan to create revival across our city. It's not. That might happen. It'd be awesome. But we, we're not the ones that decide that. This is about being a faithful presence right where we are. Right where you are right now. Person sitting next to you. Right where you were when you just reached across the aisle to shake somebody's hand. Right where you will be when you walk out these doors. Just a few minutes. It's about being a faithful presence where we work and where we live. Where we engage friends. This is the simple things. This is a smile at a retail clerk. It's a greeting to someone. It's building a relationship. It's meeting a need. It's sharing a little bit of your story and trusting God that he will open and close the doors. That's what this is about. This is about proclaiming Christ and maturing in the faith and giving our lives away. Brent wanted in Franklin and in Green Hills. Why? So that others might hear the truth and that we might grow in it. What grows in us might pour out of us as we engage others. And as it pours out of us that we, that we would trust God, he's in charge of the results, that we would trust him to somehow use our own changed lives to change the lives of others. See, well, all, we, all we are entrusted with is just to be faithful, that's it. God is responsible for the results. So we can live free, free to engage. Well, that's not as easy as it sounds. Well, you're right, it's, it's not. It can be very hard to walk through the door. Why, why is it so hard to, to keep the truth? Why, why is it so hard to step through the door of opportunity that Jesus Christ gives his church? Here's why. It's because Satan opposes it at every turn. That's why. It's the same thing that was true of the church at Philadelphia. Who did, who did Satan use in the church of Philadelphia? Jewish. The Jews who had this long history with God. It, it came from a very uncommon place. Who is it today? Well, it's different maybe for each one of us. Not quite as persecuted as they were, but we do have opposition. You know what it sounds like today? It's the ways that Satan tries to deceive us. 
the ways that he tries to lull us to sleep. Are you sure? Are you sure that all of those promises about your future are true? Are you sure? You're just one voice. Do you really think somebody's going to listen to you? Really? You don't even know what you're talking about. What if they ask you a question you don't know the answer to? What are you going to say? That's what it sounds like today. Just in our head. Ah, maybe I don't. I don't know. Maybe for you it's it's this. Maybe it's that you're in an environment where. The Bible's rejected and you are marginalized as a Christian. It's just, oh, how do I step through this door? I don't even know. Maybe for you it's that you're alone and you like the fellowship that you need to push you along to encourage you in this, to keep God's word, to maintain it, to follow it, to trust it, to step through doors of opportunities that he gives us with, with others. You, you know what it is for me? This is where it's most difficult for me to step through the door of a kingdom opportunity. Here, here's, here's where it is. I get going too fast. That's what it is for me. I just get going too fast. I, I think this is probably true for a lot of us. We're aware of it. We're not aware of it. We just, we just get busied up. Just going, going, going. That, and, and you see, Jesus is saying here to keep the truth and to engage with the truth, it requires that we slow down. Why does it require that? Because it's all about the word of God and the souls of men. That's why. Relationships. Takes time to build our relationship with Jesus Christ. It takes time to engage someone else in the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Richard Scott, one of our executive pastors, did did a devotional for our staff team this week. He was in the story, uh, Jesus' story about the Good Samaritan. Those of you who don't know the story, the story of the Good Samaritan is that there's a man that's left for dead on the side of the road. And there's three travelers that come to him. And the first two come up to this man and they walk to the other side of the road and they pass the man. They don't know anything for him. And the last one, the good Samaritan, he comes up to the man and he cares for him. He cares for him well. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to the next village and he puts him in the inn and he cares for him. He spends the night with him. He spends the next day with him. And then he pays the innkeeper so that this man can stay and recover for the next couple of weeks. This is the good Samaritan. And at the end of sharing this devotional, Richard looked at all of us on the staff and he said, he said this, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What, what would you do if you came up on a man, not, not necessarily it was dying, but a man on the side of the road that was in need? What, what would you do? And this is so convicting, but you know what my first thought was? I would look at my watch. I would see if I had time. That was my very first thought. It's convicting, isn't it? Now, let's take it out of the metaphor for just a minute, out of the story that Jesus told and take it away from a, a physical issue and, and make it a spiritual issue, a spiritual opportunity. If you had a conversation or if you met someone that had a spiritual need, would you, would I take the time to engage that need? You see, the deception of Satan in our world today is the speed of life. It's the speed of life. Almost impossible to have a faithful witness when we are racing past moments. It's almost impossible. So I'm racing my kids to the next thing and I miss a spiritual conversation, a deeper spiritual conversation with them in the car. Or, or uh, there's a retail clerk, literally, that's, that says it's just a little window into their life and 
I'm not going to stop now because I've got so many errands to run. Or, or it's the, the coworker at, at work and, and it's just a question about something that's just on the edge of spiritual. It's an opportunity and it's like, oh, I've got so much to do. I'll just answer this question really quick. That, that's it. This is where the doors of opportunity open for us. And when we busy our lives, we miss the hearts of others, don't we? And Jesus invites us to more. Not more busying ourselves with good things, but to be more aware. More aware of what he's doing in us and through us. See, this is the great switch on his mission it's like I'm trying to go about his mission and I'm becoming more aware of who I actually am. My own brokenness. My own need for him. He creates opportunities for us, for others, but they come back to us. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's what they do. So we grow and others have the opportunity to hear. He invites us not to do more, but to be more with him. It's one of the most powerful things about the opportunities that Jesus gives his church. It's the chance to know more of him. For if we will slow down long enough to join him on his mission, we will see more of who he is. His holiness, as the text says. His truth. His sovereignty. His compassion. We will experience more of his presence. His presence in our lives and his awesome power through us. In fact, the only way to experience the breadth of the ministry that God calls the church to is to go to the depth of our personal relationship with him. It's to grow the depth. That, that's how we engage the breadth. That's how we engage our city. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to just keep the word for a moment. That's what we're going to do. I, I'm just going to give you a moment. This is like our so what time, our our application time. And I just want you to reflect on Jesus's words to you. The depth. That in the depth, if, as we might keep his word, know his word, keep his word, see his word, and follow his word, that then we would be aware of the opportunities that he gives us. So the depth. So here's how we're going to do that. I, I want you to keep your Bible open if you have one. If you don't, it's fine. They're, they're going to come up here on the side screens. I, I just want you to read back through this passage you might just read it through slowly twice. And I just want you to be aware of what's true about the character of Jesus. What does this passage say about Jesus's character? In some cases, it'll be direct. It'll just be, he is holy. Okay, I got it. In other places, you'll have to put it to your own words as you see what Jesus does and what he promises to them. Take just two or three minutes is all we're going to take to do this. Reflect on the character of Jesus and ask the Spirit of God to show you places in your own life where you might keep his word. Then I'll close us in prayer. Take a minute to do that.
Lord Jesus, you are holy. You are true. You hold the keys to eternity. You intervene on this earth. You open and you close. You know us, every part of us. You are power. You are not about lies. You are about the truth. You love and you honor and bless your church. You come quickly because you have the power and authority to do that. You will come. And your name is great. May we be a people who in reflecting on your character begin to know you and see you more deeply. And as we understand you, you would change us. We might recognize the gap between us and you. We would be made more into your image. And as we are made more into your image, we would be keepers of your word. That is that we would follow your word and align our lives to your word. And as we do that, would you work in us and through us to be a light to our city? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go in peace.